standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about the fifth instalment of our International Women's Day series. So if you haven't been paying attention this week, we have had a podcast every day thus far. And so far, Mickey has chatted to the brilliant feminist lawyer and founder of the Centre for Women's Justice, Harriet Wistrich. Hannah spoke to Katie Wicks, actress and author of the forthcoming book Delicacy, a memoir about cake and death, which is just chef's kiss. So have a listen to that if you've not already. She also spoke to Kerrang DJ Sophie Kay about female representation in rock music and, and rocking out in the pandemic, or not. I spoke to Laura Biceps Hoggins, PT and co-director of The Foundry Gym, also an author and podcaster, about all things strong women, body image and fake news bums. In our final episode tomorrow... Mickey will be chatting to writer Gabby Hinsliff about Betty Friedan, who would be 100 this year, and her seminal book, The Feminine Mystique. But in this episode, I am chatting to Dr Hannah Dawson, Senior Lecturer in the History of Ideas at King's College London and editor of the forthcoming Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. We talk about the history of feminist ideas, about feminist writing through the ages, and indeed, the absolute bloody joy of it. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed chatting to her. I'm joined by Dr Hannah Dawson, Senior Lecturer in the History of Ideas at King's College London and editor of the new book, The Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Jan. How are it's you? lovely to be here. Oh, I'm all right. Thank you. It's lovely. It's lovely to have you here. We are here today to talk about... Well, we're here to talk primarily about the book and about the way that feminist writing and thought has kind of evolved over time. But your mm. job title is quite exciting and I've never heard of, of such such a subject before. So I wanted to ask you a little bit first about what is, apart from, you know, the obvious, what, what is the history of ideas? <laughs> well, that is a big question. Um, I mean, it is kind of, it is what it says, you know, it's the history of thought and I mean traditionally classically it's been the history of male thought of men thinking um so when I did my undergraduate degree in history and I was really interested in the history of ideas I didn't study a single woman thinker I studied Plato Aristotle Hobbes Locke Rousseau but I never studied a woman and you know and that was quite a long time ago now so part of the kind of genesis of my own interest in studying women in the history of ideas um, is precisely to kind of well to, to put them back in to the canon where they belong and that is happening a lot now that the subject as a whole is um, undergoing a kind of fantastic change and by the way, I should say this, given that there's such a hoo-ha at the moment in relation to a kind of so-called culture war and the horror of diversifying the curriculum, that when we say diversifying the curriculum, we're not erasing anything in history. We're not taking things out. We're not making things up. We're just putting more voices back in. So there were extraordinary women thinkers um, in history, and, and I hope that many of them are now going to be fixed in the canon through my book. Well, absolutely. Oh, let me reach for this massive book. Um, <laughs> I've got the book in front of me and I, I told you already before we started recording that I went yeah. through it and, you know, I was just absolutely beaming because there's so mm. many fantastic 
brilliant writers in there, some of whom I've heard of, some of whom I haven't mm. heard of, books that I want to read properly. Now I've read a little essay in here. Mm. And um, I said to you already, Jeanette Winterson, who I just think her writing is just, oh, like mm. amazing. It's so funny and it's so powerful. And it's just, I could go on and on and on and fangirl over, you know, all of this mm. really. But I wanted mm. to know, because there are so many of them, Mm. How did you go about selecting these women and, and the the writing specifically? Well, honestly, Jen, it was agony. You know, it, it's, there's literally infinite number of feminist classics who could have been in this book. And it was a huge task. It was a huge task to kind of extend the confines of my own knowledge and to discover just the depth and breadth and global nature of feminism. I mean, feminism really is a movement or a series of movements or a series of thinkers that stretches right back into the deep past and all around the world. And I began as a, as a, you know, a historian of English, of early modern English thought, of early modern English feminism. And I knew that what I didn't want to do, what I absolutely didn't want to do is just reproduce the same old kind of stale white feminist story of the four waves. And so I mean, what I did actually right at the beginning is I kind of got the map out and, and I and I went around and I thought I need voices from every continent and I need voices from from the deep past as well as the recent past. And and I kind of went around sort of ticking the boxes in a way. And I've been thinking about the idea of ticking boxes as as a method, because it sounds really sort of boring and mundane and but actually, I think that that's what you have to do. It's a bit like kind of political correctness or so-called wokeness. You know, it's just about making sure that you have that you're you're alert and that you're covering the bases um, and that you don't trust just to kind of your intuition or your common sense, because actually those are saturated with your own prejudices and and, and your own ignorance. So I thought, you know, I need to I need to learn. So I asked a range of experts for their recommendations in their particular field, Africanists, sinologists, etc. And I followed up and there was this kind of extraordinary summer where the books just kept piling into my office until I was I was really kind of surrounded by by walls of books. That was hard work and it was quite discomforting often. I mean what I really wanted to do in addition to kind of make it global was to make it deeply inclusive and intersectional and not shy away from the discomforts and difficulties that I encountered. And it is very discomforting often to read the works. You know, sort of personally, I, I'm white, um, I'm middle class, and I needed to hear and listen to the voices of black feminists and the way in which they were identifying white feminism as a source of oppression. And, and you know, that is just, just uncomfortable, but it was also kind of joyous to, to open myself and to feel myself changing. And I hope that that is something that the book will do, that it will be, it, it will be a kind of transformative experience as well as a joyous experience. Because I should say that the other thing that I really kind of, that really motivated me in the selection was that I wanted it to be a pleasure to read. So I tried to include um, poems and extracts from novels and memoir and, and even some plays um, and balance that with the kind of overtly political manifestos so that it was generically diverse. And yeah, as I say, it was a thrill uh, that there was kind of that there was literary quality and content there that would make it a, just a, a joyous thing to read as well as an important 
thing intellectually. When you go back and you look at some of the names in the book, so mm. for example, Mary Wollstonecraft, Evelyn Pankhurst, Rosa Luxemburg, you know, there's there's a bunch of names in there that you would probably, you might be expecting to see. I guess like, you know, how do you decide what is a feminist classic mm. in kind of modern terms? How do you, how do you judge mm. that? I mean, as I say, what I wanted to do to kind of rethink the canon, not as it were, just by putting only lesser known voices in. I wanted to I wanted to bring lesser known voices in, but not exclude Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, in the end, you know, this is always a matter of judgment. And the truth is, you know, what it was four years ago that I started the um the selection, that I started thinking about who who to put in. And, you know, I mean I could I could have an entirely different list now. So I think a lot of it is to do with judgment. I mean there are two things as I say um, one is that, you know, a lot of these pieces I love. So there's that kind of personal response and or a lot of these pieces I think are important. Um, and of course, those two things don't always go together. I don't agree with everything in this book, but this is a kind of it's a history. And the, and the whole idea is to kind of demonstrate the extraordinary breadth and depth of the history of feminism, as well as to testify to its literary significance. So let's talk a little bit about how feminism has changed over time, because obviously, you know, you, you refer to the the four waves and, you know, I'm, I'm mm. sure there will be more and more. And, you know, when we talk about the mm. history of ideas, obviously that has changed enormously. And that's something that you, mm. you know, you said you've sort of sought to reflect in the book mm. as well. I guess one way into that very big and good question is to think about it in the context of International Women's Day, the reason for our our meeting um, mm. in this conversation. And I mean, it is striking that um, that the whole institution of International Women's Day comes out of the Russian communist revolution. <laughs> and that immediately points to a kind of shift, one particular shift um, in feminism, which is to as it were, from something that is deeply collective, it's grounded in the idea of um, solidarity and the uniting of women, to arguably something that has come, at least sort of in the, in the you know, so-called West, which is about female self-empowerment, it's about how many women are on boards, you know, who's in power, can you break through the glass ceiling? And I think that in a way, one lamentable kind of change if you like in feminism has been precisely this shift from its its origins in collective action to something that's about sort of you know liberal individualistic women trying to get to the top rather than thinking about how we can kind of lean out that's dawn foster's lovely term uh lean out um, and help other women Absolutely. So you talked about the origins of International Women's Day and Alexandra Kollontai is uh, yes. one of the original co-founders and two of her essays are published in the book, Sexual yes. Relations and the Class Struggle and The Labour of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. And she was yes. a Russian revolutionary and politician and theorist and all sorts yeah. of things. Can you tell us a little bit about her and about those essays and, and, and why they were important to you to include? 
As you said, Alexandra Kollontai was one of the co-founders of International Women's Day that comes out of Russian revolutionary communism. And so International Women's Day was um, inaugurated in Russia in 1913, but then it really became a kind of political force in 1917, International Women's Day 1917, when um, women in the textile factories were called out for a general strike. And this was absolutely integral in, well, in the Russian Revolution. Um, Alexandra Kolontai then went on to become a member of the Bolshevik government. Um, and she was head of the women's department, as it was called. And she, she um, pioneered extraordinary and important changes for women, for women's rights in relation to pay, uh, the freedom to divorce, their access to higher education. And I think it, it's an interesting feature of the Russian Revolution that in many ways it was a feminist revolution. Anyway, one of the pieces in the book I think is really um, resonant today, uh, especially in the light of what's happened to women's work and the visibility of women's work in the pandemic, is called The Labour of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. And her core thought there is why should women have to do the work of looking after children? Why is that their job? Women are necessary for giving birth to the children. No one else can do that. But in relation to childcare, why should that be women's work? Why should that be the work of the kind of individual woman in an individual family? It feels so resonant today when, you know, at a stroke and without apparently a second thought, the government said, homeschool, <laughs> uh, you know, look <laughs> yeah. after your children. And, and, and didn't apparently for about six months give a real, con you know, they just, they just assumed that women would pick that up um, or they assumed that women had nannies, God knows, but they certainly didn't think seriously um, about what they were doing there. Well, maybe they did, and maybe they don't care. Maybe they're just total misogynists. In fact, we know they are. Anyway, here that, we are. Honest, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's Kolontai. She says, It is necessary for the collective to assume all the cares of motherhood that have weighed so heavily on women, thus recognising that the task of bringing up children ceases to be a function of the private family and becomes a social function of the state. Maternity begins to be seen in a new light. Soviet power views maternity as a social task. Soviet power, basing itself on this principle, has outlined a number of measures to shift the burden of motherhood from the shoulders of women to those of the state. Now, obviously, communism is not perfect, Jen, but wouldn't it be nice were women's work to be um, taken seriously by the um, state and not taken for granted as something that we will just do behind closed doors? I heard about this place in, in mm. South London where there's like a kind of community where they all mm. just sort of like all the women kind of hang out and co-work and, and look after each other's children. And I was like, mm. that sounds amazing mm. but why isn't there a community of men doing the same it is very striking that when you have young children especially that you start to yearn for a commune yes um, i mean another another figure who's in the book is sylvia federici who picks up this idea about the invisibility of women's work and the value of women's work in the wages for housework movement, which speaks to exactly what you've just been saying in the 1970s. And so, so her idea, she has this brilliant analysis, which is that, that as women, we're told that, that the work that we do in the home, the caring, the cleaning, the cooking, that this is somehow natural. It's what we're kind of made to do. It's what we're built to do. It is 
as she says, a labour of love. And of course, the sort of Marxist feminist point is, it's work. It's work. And to think of it in any other terms is to be tricked by patriarchal ideology and that actually it's work and we should be paid for it. And that is is exactly what lies behind the, um, well, for example, in this country, the child benefit, the introduction of child benefit introduced by a Labour government, which was precisely designed and thought of as payment for women's work. It was paid into mother's bank accounts because they understood that it was work. And we've forgotten that now. I mean, our government has clearly forgotten it. Yeah, and, and I guess like the point of it also was that it's money that you, they could be sure they were going to get, right? And it wouldn't be controlled exactly. by by someone else exactly so i want to take you if i can seamlessly Mm. hannah uh, Mm. from from this idea about this sort of feminism as a collective movement to feminism Mm. you know something you've said that you regret a little bit about the way the the ideas around feminism have changed to a kind of individualistic Mm. everyone you know trying to make it and and punching through the glass ceiling on their own Mm. etc etc so i do want to take you seamlessly to um Mm. the extract from Jeanette Winterson's book Why Be Happy When mm. You Can Be Normal which I have to say there's a quote in there that I read and it just mm. I, it, I just like it absolutely delighted me mm. when she talks about how they have their their sex education lesson and they're told that you should both pay on a date basically but you should give the money to the the man to pay so that he feels that he's in control of the situation and she says I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard a flat earth theory <laughs> of social relations <laughs> And that is, that's why I love her, because she's so funny. Um, she's so funny. She's I know, so it's an amazing funny. memoir. So the extract, it's an extract from her incredible memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. Yes, and um, the reason I mentioned it is because yeah. of what she then goes on to talk about, about how to her, as a working class young mm. woman, how Thatcher was really appealing to her mm. um, you know there's an amazing bit in that extract about where she sort of talks about um her ambivalence towards the left and of course historically feminism and the left socialism communism they've had an ambivalent relationship as i've already suggested in mm. relation to alexandra kollontai marxism was an amazingly rich resource for feminists insofar as it um, helped them think about the value and the theft of their labor um, but it was also a deeply sexist movement often often yeah. the worker was coded male the worker in the factory was coded male whereas of course there were swathes of working class women who were working for money as well as unpaid in the home yes i mean i could read a little bit from the winston extract so she says i was a woman i was a working class woman i was a woman who wanted to love women without guilt or ridicule Those three things formed the basis of my politics, not the union or class war as understood by the left, by the male left. The left has taken a long time to fully include women as independent and as equals and no longer to enfold women's sexuality in a response to male desire. I felt uncomfortable and sidelined by what I knew of left-wing politics. And I wasn't looking to improve the conditions of my life, I wanted to change my life out of all recognition. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, she's just, oh, she just writes so beautifully. <laughs> I really do love her. And I haven't read that book and I, I'm absolutely mm. going to go and buy it probably as soon oh, as we yes. finish talking. Yeah, and if anyone listening to this hasn't read Jeanette Winterson, you, you really should. She's just so good. 
Another one in here that I love, which, you know, I, this is very much my kind of generation because obviously it mm. was popularised in a Beyonce song, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure she probably is a bit bored of hearing people talk about. In fact, I'm pretty sure. No! I mean, who knows? But I think it's a pretty good alliance. Well, I think so. But yeah, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm. there's an extract from the fantastic... Well, I think Mm. it's actually from a TED talk, isn't it? We should all be feminists. I think that's where it originates from. But then it was obviously published as well, which I think is just in terms of a rational kind of argument. Mm. It's written in such a way that I think is just so hard to argue Mm. against. Yes, I love that book too. And um, obviously, that's why I included yeah, it. Um, but also, I mean, I, one of the reasons I wanted to include it was because it makes this very specific point, which is about how patriarchy and the, the sort of um, social imposition of gender hurts everyone, including boys and men. And the idea of masculinity as requiring a particular sort of view about of strength and not feeling and not pleasing, this is punitive to boys just as much as to girls, that masculinity is a cage, just like um, femininity. She says, we do a great disservice to boys in how we raise them. We stifle the humanity of boys. We define masculinity in a very narrow way. Masculinity is a hard, small cage, and we put boys inside this cage. It's just so brilliant um, mm. in relation to the fact that feminism is for everybody, that it is, it's a liberation from the punitive norms um, of gender. I think, you know, we can all agree that gender inequality is bad for everyone, absolutely, because, you know, I can't put it any better than she did, frankly. But mm. yeah, we're absolutely damaging young men as, as well as young women with you know mm. with the patriarchy and, and the way that society is set up but do you believe that feminism is for everyone yes i mean of course we have to define our terms at this point sure. and um and feminism I and mean, it seems to me that what feminism is is it's a it's a viewpoint it's a it's a it's an opinion it's a political opinion that says that there is such a thing as sexism, there is such a thing as patriarchy, that it's bad and that we ought to get rid of it. And we ought to challenge it, we ought to have a revolution against it. Now, it seems that it's it's like saying racism is bad, sexism is bad. And of course, everyone can um, have that view, men, women alike. So that's to say, you know, it's not the case that all women are feminists, or that all feminists are women. Mm. Um, those two things aren't synonyms. Feminism is a political position that stands against the oppression of women and the oppressions of gender. And everyone can choose to take that stance. It's not re- restricted to, to women. So it's International Women's Day this week, and mm. the theme is about choosing to challenge, which in the context of feminism... I mean, obviously, you know, International Women's Day is for all women, not necessarily feminists. But in the context of feminism, of course, feminism is inherently a challenging movement. When you think about the feminist movement, you know, it is a movement of disruptors, basically. Do you have any particular favourites yourself? Mm. So many. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's probably like asking you to choose your favourite child, isn't it? Well, I mean, I guess... Going back to what we were talking about in relation to the way in which feminism sometimes slides into a kind of individualistic, liberal discourse, I think it's it's really valuable 
to think back to the to the original disruptors. I, I think when we were talking earlier about the different kind of metaphors to to think about feminism, that we shouldn't think about it as breaking through the glass ceiling or getting to the top of the ladder or getting to the top, but we could rather take great take a really great lesson from the National Association of Coloured Women's Clubs from the. 19th century, which was founded by African-American women. And their motto is lifting as we climb. So they're not leaving people behind. They're precisely interested in solidarity and solidarity through time. And then that sort of takes me on to another favourite, which is uh, the Kombahi River Collective and their black feminist statement of 1977. I mean, it's an extraordinary statement that uh, it's in the book. And it came out of black feminists, black American women in the 1970s in Boston who were responding to the extraordinary opposition to integration from white liberal Bostonians and also to the sense of kind of marginalization within black power and black nationalist movements. And Barbara Smith, who's one of the founders uh, of the collective in an absolutely brilliant book that's actually just come out um, called 400 souls edited by Ibram Kendi and Keisha Blaine Barbara Smith writes in that about the movement and she says we were sick of being voiceless we were sick of being exploited we were sick of being invisible we were sick of it all we wanted and needed black feminism and that idea that that as feminists we have to be acutely sensitive to those at the margins of power and to bring them squarely into the centre. That's the way that Bell Hooks phrases the, the kind of mission. And that seems that that's something that I, as a, as a white feminist, I need to hear and I need to listen to, to be sensitive to, to difference between women, to the way in which not all women are equally oppressed, that there are ways in which racism, homophobia... Uh, intersect with sexism to put extraordinary uh, pressure on certain women and, of and course, indeed class. the way in which class exactly the, the intersectionality means um, not only being sensitive to difference and deeply aware of difference between women but also deeply aware of the ways in which for example white feminists are themselves um, forces of oppression at times I mean, the great figure here, another really, really important figure in the book, who is a total kind of revolutionary joy to read, is Audre Lorde. And she's the one who really spoke to me and did a lot of work on me mm. when I was making the selections for the book. And she has this extraordinary essay that right, you know, cuts to the heart of kind of, of, of sort of who I am and who I was in her amazing essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And she talks about uh, being a black lesbian woman being asked to speak at a feminist theory conference to celebrate an anniversary of Beauvoir's um, second sex. And she asks, you know, the women there, who's looking after their children? So this is from The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Poor women and women of colour know there is a difference between the daily manifestations of marital slavery and prostitution because it is our daughters who line 42nd Street. If white American feminist theory need not deal with the differences between us and the resulting difference in our oppressions, then how do you deal with the fact that the women who clean your houses and tend your children while you attend conferences on feminist theory are for the most part poor women and women of colour? What is the theory behind racist feminism? 
So she's she's asking the question. One of the essays that I hadn't come across before, mm. which I thought was pretty incredible, really, Jane Anger. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, you and I must be in sync, Jen, because I was really thinking before this interview ends, I must talk about her. Never heard of this before. I'd never yes. read this before. And it's from yes. 1589, which is obviously, yes. you know, quite a bit earlier than... Um, mm than I had really thought about feminist mm. thought being a mm. thing, as it were. Mm. And it's from her protection for women. And it mm. is, I mean, bloody hell, she's angry, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And of course, we don't know if that's her name. Uh, it might be that precisely, as you suggest, she's just calling herself that. I know, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And actually, in relation to your earlier question about the ways in which feminism has changed, I've partly put it in there to indicate the way in which also feminism hasn't changed and the issue that feminism is addressing that's to say misogyny and sexism hasn't changed either so this book this uh this sort of pamphlet of hers is an absolute raging torrent of fury about the way in which women are relentlessly harassed by men she describes the experience of being a woman as as uh, playing blind man's bluff So it's like, you know, you're blindfolded and you're being continually pursued by someone who wants to violate you. And that's sort of the the idea that, you know, what runs through the energy of a woman's life is fear um, and then anxiety about losing one's reputation. This is a very resonant text, Mm. um, even though, as you say, it was written in 1589. I mean, we should maybe say where the book begins back in 1405. Um, I mean, that's to say my book, um, which is, you know, the 15th century, 1405, Christine de Pizan writing about how distraught she is at at being born a woman. She says, you know, I I regret, I I mourn for the fact that I've been born a woman because I look around at the, the books that have been written. They've been written by men and they're about men and women doesn't seem to have done anything of, of merit or importance. And then, of course, what she does in the course of the book is she erects a, she writes a city of ladies, which is made up of great women and also serves as a refuge from the harassment of men. Yeah, it's just like, there's there's so much in here. There is so much in here. And I could talk to you about it all probably, you know, for hours and hours and hours. But I imagine you'd, you know, quite like to have some We've got tea. children to feed. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> women's work to be done. Do you have one favourite piece in the book? I'm not going to give a favourite. I'm not going to give one favourite because it goes against the sort of spirit of the book, which is exactly about the multiplicity of voices. I mean, there are two voices I'd pull out as having been kind of personally transformative for me. And one is is Audre Lorde, who I found both kind of uncomfortable and joyous to read as she changed me and opened my eyes to things that I hadn't seen before. And the other is Angela Davis, who also changed me. I mean, I heard her speaking a few years ago and I mean, she wouldn't like to be thought of. I mean, she's a great uh, sort of socialist thinker who wouldn't like to be kind of singled out as a hero. We've got to be careful about making heroes, which is as well why I'm very reticent about wanting to pull out favourites. But I mean, she really is the most extraordinary leader, most extraordinary leader of, of intersectional, inclusive, revolutionary feminism. And I wish she were in charge. 
<laughs> I wish almost anyone was in charge other than this lot, to be honest. But um, but yeah, fair enough. Sounds good to me. The Penguin Book of Feminist Writing is published on the 18th of March by Penguin Classics and available presumably from all good bookshops, which you will soon be able to go to, I believe. Hannah, where can we follow you to see what you're up to on... So I am on Twitter at Dr Hannah Dawson. I really, honestly, I think it's it's great. I really like... So looking forward to sort of going through it more. Do you know what? That's another thing about it that's so good is that it's like a really good way to just discover other writers that maybe you aren't that familiar with. Yes. Yeah, just if you want to sort of think about other writers that you might want to yes. uh, look into, it's just like a yes. really good way of just like picking out those little kind of bite-sized little chunks and, and seeing mm. what you like and, and what you might want to just, yeah. I'm so pleased you say that, Jen, because that is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to exactly to make it both to kind of, you know, meet old favourites, but also meet new voices and kind of open up future paths for, for readers. Hannah, thank you so much. Standard Issue for All Women.